If you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians. We are back in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. I'm so thankful um, for Paul having preached for us the past three weeks from John 3 and 4. We are blessed as a church to have men like Paul and others who are able to preach. And I'm blessed to have men like Paul in the church that can preach and, and give me a time to step back. It's so good to to be preached to and to have that, that break. So I'm thankful for Paul and um, excited to get back into the book of Galatians. We're slowly plodding through Galatians. Um, I understand maybe we're not moving as fast as some would like, but uh, I'm, I'm learning how to, to go through a book. And we're just going to cover verses 15 through 18 this morning, but there is a lot to chew on in there. And um, we'll, we'll cover those verses this week. Um, 19 through 22 next week, and then we'll finish up chapter 3 in the week following. But we're in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. As we've mentioned tonight, uh, as Grace Fellowship Church, as members, we are going to gather together and possibly make a fairly big decision for our church, the decision of signing a lease for a new meeting space. Uh, It's exciting. It's exciting to think where God might be taking us, how he might be using us in the coming uh, months and years for his namesake. But it's also a little scary. Uh, One of the scary parts, I think, is actually signing the lease. You know, signing the lease, this kind of seals the deal where we as elders get, you know, signed by the X and, and put our names down there and enter into this agreement with the landlords. It's a legally binding agreement. <laughs> and so we are all, as I sent it out to everyone, we're all reading this very carefully because once we sign it, we are bound by the terms of it. Uh, of course, we know that, that nothing can be added to it later on. It's a contract. If we sign a lease to that it's going to cost us a certain amount each month for two years, we know that the landlord can't jack up the rent uh, next year and, and change it on us. So we know that's true. So this, this lease, it's, it's an agreement. It's an agreement between two parties that cannot be changed. It can't be altered once it's signed, once it's been ratified. And nor can we get out of it once we sign it. Maybe that's the scary part. I mention that because here in Galatians, Paul begins to make, he's been making his, his case about justification. That the fact that we are right before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works of the law, as some were teaching. You remember in Galatians chapters 1 and 2, Paul rehearsed his history. He was seeking to show that uh, his friends in Galatia that the gospel of, of free grace that he was preaching wasn't something that he invented, but it was something that had come from God and something that he had preached to them, and now they were seemed to be strained from it, and he was trying to call them back. We continued into chapter 3 where he's arguing against the false teachers that had infiltrated into Galatia. And he begins in chapter 3 with an argument from experience. You remember he says to the Galatians, don't you remember how you came to Christ? You didn't come by works, you came by faith. And he does that in in verses 1 through 5. And then verses 6 through 14, he makes some arguments from Scripture. He goes and he quotes many different passages of Scripture showing specifically going all the way back to Abraham, making the case that Abraham was not saved by what he did. Rather, he was saved by what by, by the promise that God made to him and by faith. Abraham is our forefather in the faith. Now, he was not saved by works. He was saved by believing God. 
not based on what he did. So having argued from experience in the first five verses of chapter 3, and then verses 6 through 14, uh, he argues from Scripture. Paul now moves to an illustration to prove his point. He begins to talk in terms of promises and contracts, leases, if you will. We can draw the parallel um, to this irrevocable and the unchanging nature of a lease that we would sign, but it doesn't really fully express Paul's point. The emphasis is that God is making a promise. God has made a covenant with his people, and he's not going to change his mind. He's not going to alter the promise that he's made. So, so here's Paul's main point, if I can put it in a sentence. God has made an unchangeable promise to save the world by faith in Christ. God has made an unchangeable promise to save the world by faith in Christ. This morning, as we look at this passage, the question in your life could be the exact one that Paul is addressing. Namely, are we saved by faith alone, or are we saved by faith plus good works? Does the Christian life begin by faith and then become perfected? Does it then end by the good works that we do? Has God given us a promise of salvation, but then later added things to it, like the law that now we must do? And if those are your questions, they are not insignificant questions. And I pray today that you would see what Paul says, that salvation is rooted in the unchanging promise of God to make a way of salvation possible through faith in Jesus, not through works of the law. But your question this morning might be a little more general. It may be just kind of a, a distrust of God that maybe has, has seeped in. That is God really true to what he says he will do? And my hope this morning is that as we look at this, not only will our confidence be re uh, reestablished in the fact that God has promised salvation by faith and that is how we are saved, but, but that God is worthy of trust in all areas of life, that God is trustworthy. What he says is true. What he says he will do, he will do every time. Let's read Galatians 3, verses 15 through 18 as we begin to look at this passage and apply it. It says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Let's try to understand Paul's flow of argument here. He begins in verse 15, you see, by having us consider a, a human covenant. Rather than I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Uh, specifically, we could probably be, have, he's probably thinking about a, a last will and testament, but kind of a will that someone would sign. Uh, and if you have a will, the moment you die, whatever is written in there is therefore legally binding. Your death 
ratifies that covenant and no one can add to it, no one can take away from it, no one can say it's not valid. It is legally binding and must be enforced. So if you say, um, I'm going to will all my worldly possessions to my dog, uh, all your family may say, I can't believe they did that, but they can't do anything about it because it's a legally binding document and what is written there must be enforced. I hope no one has that in their will. Um, but there's some debate actually over what kind of covenant Paul is referring to here. Is, is it a will? Because can't the will be changed? If you, you know, if you have a will now and you decide that you want to change it, you can go and, um, and change it. There is some, there was some talk that in that time period, there were actually covenants that could be made that, that even if you were still alive, they could not be altered. If the covenant was signed, that was the way that it was, and you couldn't do anything about it if it was signed. Whatever exact covenant he's talking about, I think we understand what the point is. And the point is that a promise has been made, and when the promise is ratified, no, no one can take away from it, and no one can add to it. Again, as we think about a lease, the, the terms cannot be changed, uh, nothing can be added to it, and we're also bound to abide by it. So that's kind of what the illustration is. And, and he states this fact, but that what Paul is, is saying is he's saying if if this is how human beings, if, th if this is how we as individuals deal in terms of promises and, and covenants, then we can expect God to be just as faithful to his promises, even more so. We can think about uh, the story, the parable uh, in Luke 18 that Jesus tells about the widow. You remember this widow who came to a judge, and she just kept pestering the judge and asking him for justice. And she kept pestering this judge, and the judge was a mean-hearted man. And yet, because of the widow's persistence, the judge finally relented and gave her what she asked for. And what Jesus' parallel is, he says, if a wicked judge would act that way, how much more so will God listen to your requests and grant you what you need? And in some ways, that's kind of what Paul is saying. He's saying, if we as human beings know how to keep a covenant, know how to keep a promise, how much more so does God know how to do that? He is going to act just as faithfully and more so to the promises that he has made. So he goes back then to the, to the promise of Abraham. And the first thing he talks about is who the promise was made to. Who the promise was made to. Verse 16 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, is referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. It, it almost feel like, feels like Paul is making a, a side comment here. I almost see him writing, he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And the argument picks up in verse 17, but it's like it's almost as if he sees that word seed and he says, i got to say something about this. I, it doesn't fully flow necessarily, but i got to say what, it, what I'm thinking. And he says, he does not say, and to seeds is referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. He makes an argument based on the fact that the word is singular, one seed, one offspring. It's not made to offsprings or seeds but the singular seed, which he says is a reference to Christ. Now, much has been made of this seed or offspring or what you would call, we'll do a little grammar here, they're called collective nouns. They refer to a group, to a multitude of, of persons, even though they are singular grammatically. Okay, uh, Here's some other examples might be family. 
Family is singular, but it's referring to a multitude of people. How about the word team? It's not teams, it's singular, but it's referring to more than one person. The same is true for offspring and for seed. So what's Paul trying to do here? Is he, is he trying to make some sort of grammatical trick and to prove his point? Um, it's hard to really fully know exactly what the argument is, but I found this helpful from one of the commentators that I read, Philip Reichen. He says, in Galatians 3.16, Paul is not so much making an argument based on Old Testament grammar as he is explaining what the Old Testament really means. The promise of the offspring referred, first of all, to Abraham's son Isaac. Ultimately, it referred to all of God's children, but especially to God's son Jesus Christ. Again, it may be hard to follow Paul's line of reasoning, but the point is that the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham is seen in Isaac. And the promise is made to all who would follow Abraham. But the greatest fulfillment of the promised seed that was to come is seen when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. When Jesus is the source of all blessing, comes into the world. And the promise was made to him and for him and about him. And all that God promises is impossible apart from Christ. The promise that has been made to Abraham is impossible except that, that Christ has come. So Jesus then is, is our, our link to Abraham. You remember we said we're, we're children of Abraham. Why? Because we are, we are of faith. So Abraham was a man of faith, and so we are children of faith, and therefore we are children of Abraham. But we're also heirs to the promise made to Abraham because of who Abraham put his faith in. We trust in the offspring of Abraham. We trust in the promised seed of Abraham. Even we could say the promised seed that would come from Adam, who was going to crush the power of sin and death. And all the promises of God the ones to Abraham and every other promise, find their fulfillment in Jesus, in the God-man who has come to save us from our sins, to make us his children, to make us children of promise. We're going to look at this more in a little bit, but if you follow Paul's line of reasoning, we'll go back to, to verse 17. We saw who the promise was made to. Now we're going to see when the promise was made. Paul makes an argument as far as when the promise was made. Verse 17 says, What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. Paul has returned to Abraham, and now he brings the law into the picture. The Judaizers, those who were teaching the false doctrine that they, that the that people could not be saved just by their faith, but they had to add their works to it. They relied very heavily on Moses, and they relied so much on Moses and the law that they seemed to neglect the promise that was made to Abraham. The promise that had been made to Abraham had been made earlier, 430 years later, or 430 years earlier to be exact. And um, the law's late arrival means that additional stipulations, conditions cannot be added to the promise that was made to Abraham. If the promise was made to Abraham on the condition of faith, works could not be added to it because it came 430 years later. You remember that illustration that he started with. If we make a covenant, you can't add things to it after it's been signed and ratified. When I was a, a kid, we used to play backyard football a lot. 
one of the cool things that we love to do is play street football. Um, it, and I lived on a pretty quiet street. I don't know why we thought that was so great. Maybe it's just the danger element. But uh, I, I don't know what it's like in the Philippines. I talked to Joel one time, and he said that what they played as kids was boxing. Um, I was never that tough. <laughs> but we, we used to play backyard football. And one of the first things that you do when you start backyard football is you have to set the rules. You have to decide how you're going to play because it kind of changes depending on where the trees are located or how many people you have and uh, things like that. So you had to decide, well, are, are we going to play with first downs? Is a first down to get to this certain point or do you have to have, you know, two or three completions? And how is someone down? Are we playing tackle or is it, you know, two hand touch below the waist? You know, you got you to set the, the term. So everyone kind of gets everything finalized at the, at the beginning so that the, the game is set. Let's imagine as a kid you set the rules and then someone shows up late and they say they're just going to join in. So they jump into the game and they start playing and they tap someone with one hand and they say, hey, he's down. They say, we're not playing one hand tap, we're playing tackle. He's not down. Or, or they run in, you know, they, they're going to rush the quarterback. Uh, you know, you, there's, when you play, there was no line, so you had to count to Mississippi. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. And sometimes it was three Mississippi, sometimes it was five. So say he says, counts to three Mississippi and rushes the quarterback. We say, no, you can't do that. It's, it's five Mississippi. That's what we're playing. That's the rules that we set down. So we, the rules have been decided on. Someone can't come in, say, four minutes and 30 seconds later and decide that they're going to change the rules because the rules have been set from the beginning. You can't come in and, and change it. And this, this somewhat, in a strange way, I guess, what Paul's argument is, he says that the rules have been set, the stipulations have, have been made, the covenant has already been set. You can't add something 430 years later. You can't tack that on to the end and say, now this is a requirement. Now you have to do good works in order to be saved. No, the, because the promise was made to Abraham based on faith, and it was a promise that is irrevocable, that it cannot change. Now, is this because God's stubborn? Is it, is it because God's kind of trapped himself in a promise that he wishes he could get out of? You know, that this is something that he would like to change, but, but he can't? I don't think so. God's not caught in a technicality, but what he is bound by is he's bound by his character. He's bound by who he is. Throughout the story of Abraham, God continually reiterates and repeats this covenant. And he does so by saying all that he will do. I will bless you. I will give you the land of Canaan. I'm going to multiply your seed. And when he makes the covenant with Abraham, in Genesis 17, he swears by himself. This was our scripture reading a few weeks ago. And Abraham, you remember, had laid out the, the sacrifices, the animals, and he had split them in two. And it was a covenant where if you're making a covenant with someone, you would literally cut the covenant is what the, the phrase means. And two people would, would walk through together, possibly holding hands, as they would walk through sacrifices that had been split. And they bound the, each other to fulfill the terms of the covenant. And the understanding was that if we break these terms, then may it happen to us as has happened to these animals. We are binding ourselves together to do this promise. What's unique in Genesis 17 is, that Abraham never walks through the sacrifices. But rather this, this vision of God shows up, and Abraham stands back and he watches God go through the covenant. And God binds himself to fulfill the promise, to fulfill the covenant to Abraham, and it has absolutely nothing to do with what Abraham will do or not do. God says, I swear by myself that I will do this. In Genesis 22, 
verses 16 through 17, after uh, Abraham had taken Isaac up to the mountain and God provided the ram after he saw that Abraham was ready to obey, he says this, God says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. By myself I have sworn. God is bound by who he is. He's not caught in a technicality. He is bound. It's all bound up in, in who God is. And he is a faithful covenant keeping God. Paul then summarizes his, his argument in verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Paul kind of summarizes his argument in verse 18. He shows that if we decide that the inheritance of salvation is, is rooted in the law, then it can't be rooted in a promise. The Judaizers, they, they, the, the false teachers, they, they wanted it both ways. Uh, they wanted to begin by grace and a promise and then be perfected by the law. And so they assumed that the pattern was, well, Abraham came first by faith and then the law was added. And so that's kind of how we have to work. We come by faith, but then we have to add the law to it. And Paul says that God's plan of salvation, the way that he has chosen to redeem his children, is not founded on law, but on a promise. And God will not change or revoke or remove that promise. John Stott, a comment, another commentator, kind of helps see the difference. He says this, The promise sets forth a religion of God, God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. But the law sets forth a religion of man, man's duty, man's works, man's responsibility. The promise, standing for the grace of God, had only to be believed, faith. But the law standing for the works of men, had to be obeyed. Paul does what he's done throughout the book of Galatians, and he says that if salvation is rooted in what we do, then it can't be founded on faith. You remember this um, from the the end of, verse, uh, of chapter 2. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He says, if it is through the law, then Christ's death was in vain. There was no point to him dying. And that's some of what he does here. He says, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. He says, if it's based on law, then the promise that God made to Abraham was useless. And there was no point in Christ coming as the fulfillment of that promise, because it's rooted in law now. It's not rooted in the promise. He says, if you do that, you're throwing out the promise that God made to Abraham. The death of Christ is said to be needless, and so would even the coming of this promised seed. It would be unnecessary if law has taken over. He says that's not how God works. He says that we thank, we're, we're thankful that, that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. That my salvation is not found in what I do, but what in what God has done. And he has sent Jesus, the seed of Abraham, to become my substitute to die for the sins that I've done, to give me new life. The promise, or as Paul calls it here, he uses the word uh, inheritance. For if the inheritance is based on law, the inheritance that we receive is received 
as any promise is received. It's received by believing and receiving. I ran into a, a friend this past week that I used to work with. I just kind of stumbled in. I was at uh, Panera, and I heard, hello, Andy. And it just totally caught me off guard. I hadn't seen him in five years, and he was standing behind the counter there. And uh, so we talked uh, for a little while, and um, he was just kind of telling me about his life and some of the plans he'd made and how his plans had changed. And uh, he was planning to go to school and then ended up uh, meeting a girl, and they were going to get married. They're getting married in June, and how things had just kind of totally changed. His plan was different, and he kind of ended that that conversation because it, it wasn't going exactly the way that he planned. He's excited to be getting married, but he had planned to go to school. And uh, But he said that he was just waiting for some long-lost rich uncle to die and solve all his problems. <laughs> That's the hope of many people, isn't it? If it's not the lottery, it's that a relative unknown to us will die. We would feel bad that the person died, but that they would be, that we would be kind of the only relative left to receive this massive estate, some inheritance, this large amount of money that would solve all of our problems. Have you heard this? I'm waiting for my long lost rich uncle to die. Can you imagine getting that phone call? <laughs> you go to a lawyer and they would uh, read the will and the stated amount of your inheritance and, and then what would you do after that? I mean, would you need to work for it or? Would you have to pay for it? You might have to sign something, but no, you would you would receive it, and your entire life would be changed. And the same is true for us as we think about an inheritance that God has made a promise to us. He's made a promise to give us salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And when Jesus dies, he opens up the way for us to receive this inheritance. Titus 3.7 talks about it. He says, we are now heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We can become joint heirs with Jesus. And how do we receive the inheritance? How do we gain this estate, this reward, this, this totally new life? We don't get it by obedience to the law. We get it by faith. By faith in Christ. By believing the promise. By believing that God can do what he said he will do. It's by faith. So God has made this promise, and he will fulfill it. You know, I said that Paul argued first from experience and then from, from Scripture and now from an illustration, but it's not really that he's arguing from an illustration. Rather, Paul is arguing based on the character of God. He's arguing on the character of God, and he's, the first thing he says is that God's promises can be trusted because God is trustworthy. God's promises can be trusted because God is trustworthy. God's promises, are they're not empty promises. Uh, we live in a world that it's its hard to trust people. Do you agree with that? We read the fine print, always, because you never know what it says. We're hesitant to entrust ourselves to people because there's, there's scam artists all around. And there's always spin attached to information. We don't believe anything that is said to us. And some people live by the motto, don't trust anyone some of us have been burned probably in life we've had someone who has said they will do something and though they're small or big we've all had someone that just hasn't followed through and we've lost trust and that's hard i've been the person that that has failed in circumstances and so have you we have we have all caused people to mistrust us but the, the beautiful truth for us is that God can 
be trusted. That that he never he never fails to do what he says he will do. We can trust God. We can trust His word. He's not going to get us on a technicality. There's no fine print in God's promises. He's not going to change the terms. He's not going to say this is how it is, and then oh wait a minute, I'm going to add this to the end of it. He doesn't say things in a way that we have to wonder: is he is he lying? Is he just saying it that way, and then he's going to twist it to not really be what he says it is? No. God does not do that. God is a God who keeps his promises. He says what he will do. At the core, we we trust God because of his character. Again, because he has sworn by himself is how we can trust him. We saw this in Genesis. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Then he says this, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We can have the utmost confidence in God. He has sworn by himself. And we know that he will do what he has said he will do. The hope for our salvation is not rooted in what we do. It's rooted in who God is. And if God has said, I will do this, and I'm going to swear by the greatest thing I can possibly swear by. I will swear by myself. My unchangeable nature. I will do this. Then our salvation is secure. Because it's rooted in in, in who God is, not in what we do. So we have this this confidence before God, as, as the author of Hebrews says, an anchor of the soul that just holds on in the midst of storms where we, we don't know what's going on. We're not sure. Am I, is salvation really by grace? I feel like I need to do something. And, and yet that anchor comes back and says, no, God has done everything that needs to be done. And I trust him because of who he is, because of who he has always been. He has never changed. He's always been the same. And he will keep his promises just as he said he will. If you can trust no one else, you can trust God. He will do what he has said he will do. That's true for salvation and that's true for every other promise that he has ever made. That we can trust him. I think an implication of this, and I hope I'm not stretching it, and yet I think it's, I think it's here, is that if we are God's children, then we should be like him. Then you look at verse 15, and it says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. He says, it should be natural that we are trustworthy. And as children of God, as children of a God who keeps his promises, then we should be people who keep our promises. We should be people of our word. As Jesus says, our yes should be yes, and our no should be no. Will we be perfect? No. I've said things this week that I probably have not followed through with. 
Some of that is, is just the fact that we are fallen, that we are imperfect. And yet we should strive to be like God in this, that the covenants and the promises we make, we should keep them as representatives of who God is. That we shouldn't make promises or, or we shouldn't say we will do something unless we really intend to do it. We shouldn't use our speech in a way that we says, oh, I'm, I'm, I said I was going to do that, but I'm not really going to do it the way that I did, that I said I would. Might we be like God? That what we say, our word is our bond. That if we say we're going to do it, we are going to do it the way that we said we will. Only by the power of God and His Spirit can we do that and be that. So, the first thing that we talked about is is that we can trust God completely. And then just the last thing I want to close with is this this truth that all of God's promises find their fulfillment in Christ. All of God's promises find their fulfillment in Christ. As with all of Scripture, all signs point to Jesus. (laughs) The reason Jesus is always a good guess to any Sunday school answer is that Jesus is most often the right answer. Even the promise made to Abraham all the way back then, was pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. Again, that's the point of that illustration. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. Whatever Paul's trying to do with the grammar and the language, what he's really trying to do is to say that Jesus is the focus of not just all of Scripture, but all of history. It all comes to Jesus. And when God made a promise to Abraham way back when, Christ was in his mind. When he said, I will, what does he say there? He says, the promise was spoken to Abraham and to his seed. When God said, I'm going to bless your seed, he knew that he was thinking Isaac. He knew that he was thinking the people of Israel, but he knew more fully that he said, ah, they don't really know exactly what I mean. And what I really mean is that when Jesus comes, he's going to fulfill all of these promises. He's going to bring them all to fruition. We worship Jesus as the beginning and the end of all of God's commandments. All of the promises that God has given to us are, Second Corinthians says, they are yes and amen in Jesus. They come true because of who Jesus is, and he gives us all the blessings that we can have in God. So, this evening we will talk about Elise, and we will read it carefully. We want to make sure, because we're putting ourselves into a covenant, and we live in a world that sometimes is not worthy of trust, and so we want to be careful. And yet, we don't enter into an agreement with God where we have to worry that he's not going to be true to his word. In fact, it's not even a two-way agreement. The lease has two spots to sign at the bottom, one for Grace Fellowship Church and one for the landlord. And the covenants that God makes, there's only one spot. God binds himself by himself, by his own character, and they are all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you can trust him. You can trust him completely for everything that he said, and most importantly, we can trust him for our salvation. We can give them our very souls and know that we can have forgiveness of sins 
because of what Jesus has done in dying and raising from the dead. We don't need to do anything. We don't need to add anything to the end. We simply need to believe, like our forefather in the faith, Abraham. Believe in the promise that God has made to us. Let's pray together.